And a Christian is defined simply as a follower of Christ, someone who follows the life and teachings of Jesus. And I looked at this recently, and I, I looked at several po- polls, and the Pew Research has some good information about this. And there's some other really respected uh, polling agencies out there that give you some good information. But 63% of Americans call themselves Christians. Now, that's, that's down dra- drastically over the last 20, 30 years. But 63% is a, is a good majority of Americans. So 63% call themselves Christians, but I doubt, I don't see 63% of Americans following Jesus. I don't see 63% of those people following. If they did, our, our nation would look vastly different than what it does today. 63% of Americans believe Jesus died on the cross. They may believe that he rose from the grave. They may believe that he is the savior of the world. He's the only way to be saved. But that doesn't make them a follower of Jesus. So what could cause so many people to identify as a Christian, but not follow the life and teachings of Jesus? And I think part of the reason goes back to to us as the church, that sometimes we present the gospel in a really watered down fashion. We don't want to offend anyone. Uh, We we don't want to scare people away. We don't want to be too aggressive. I, I get that. But if you love a person or if you have compassion for it, you just have to share God's worth and truth. So I think the church may have contributed to the discrepancy. You know, we sometimes communicate a gospel that's easy to believe uh, and easy to believe to a fallen world rather than a gospel that calls for repentance. And because of the the popularity of just easy believing, uh, we've witnessed the biblical plan of salvation really reduced down to believing a few scriptures and also out of context. Last week I mentioned this verse, I'm going to mention it again. I mean, probably the most popular verse in Christianity, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever what? Believes. And people say, well, there you go. Whoever believes. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. And the verse is true. I mean, if I'm, if I'm sharing the gospel with someone, I'm going to share John 3, 16 with them probably in that conversation. However, you can't take John 3, 16 out of that entire conversation that Jesus has with a man named Nicodemus. You can't take one part of that that conversation, isolate it, and neglect the the rest of the conversation. How does the conversation with Nicodemus begin? There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus was what we call a believer because this, he believes in Jesus. He believes that Jesus is from God. He believes that God is with him. So Nicodemus would be one of those people we would call a believer But Jesus sees the belief that Nicodemus has, and what does he say to Nicodemus? What does he say in response to his belief? You must be born again. Now, I don't know why we've eliminated that out of the gospel presentation. Those are the words of Jesus. We must be born again. And like Nicodemus, 63% of Americans may believe in Jesus, but 63% of our population are not born again. If a person genuinely believes in Jesus, responds to him by faith, with repentance, they should 
receive the Holy Spirit and experience new birth. Now, what did Peter preach in the first message of Christianity? The first message preached by the church after Jesus ascended into heaven. It was in Acts chapter 2. And as he ends his message, this is the response of the people. Verse 37, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They, were, they felt conviction and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do to be saved? And Peter said to them, repent. There's another word we leave out in the gospel presentation. Why are we afraid to say the word repent? Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall what? You shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, we cannot preach a message of salvation that is void of repentance and without the reception of the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, the message Peter preached in the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost isn't a message that is consistently being shared today in our churches. And that's why 63% of Americans call themselves Christians, but 63% aren't following Jesus. And again, you say, well, how can you make that leap? Just look at how our nation functions, politically, socially. I mean, every area, every capacity. Do we really see two-thirds of the people functioning, following Jesus in their everyday life? A person can believe in Jesus, believe the gospel is true, but that doesn't make them a Christian. If a person isn't born again, they haven't received the Holy Spirit, following Jesus as Lord will be impossible. You say, that's a strong word, impossible? And I chose that word purposely. Yes, impossible. Here's why. If it were possible to follow Jesus without the Holy Spirit, why would he send us the Holy Spirit and say, we must be born again. You should receive the Holy Spirit, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, you're not going to experience new birth. New birth isn't some kind of, uh, what my mother-in-law would refer to, she's now with the Lord, as an epiphany. It's not, it's not an epiphany. It's not just a, a, a moment of clarity. New birth is a change. It's a transformation. You are changed from a, a, an old creature into a new creation. When we receive the Holy Spirit, he changes us. We become a new creation. If we're born again, the Holy Spirit can dwell in us, and then he can also empower us to follow Jesus. And that's why Jesus stressed to Nicodemus, who was believing, believed in Jesus, you must be born again. If a person believes in Jesus but hasn't experienced new birth, they can follow Jesus in certain situations, but only for a short time. Because what happens is after a while, trials will come, temptation will come, and those things will arise, and they will prove that person's inability to follow Jesus without the Holy Spirit. Many people in our community believe in Jesus, but they aren't following Jesus because they aren't born again. If a person is genuinely born again, has received the Holy Spirit, the life of Jesus really should do this. It should begin to come out of that person's life. I don't know about you, but uh, again, I didn't grow up in church. I got saved later in life. And so the changes that took place for me uh, when I was 21 were very evident, drastic changes. And so it wasn't like I was a child that was raised in a Christian home and maybe saw maybe lived a decent life and I saw this gradual change, but it was just a, a instant change in my life. I was born again. I wasn't perfect by any means, 
But as time went by, as I kept following Jesus, because I had this encounter with Jesus, because I'd received the Holy Spirit, because I was born again, the old Jay began to die. And he's still dying. I don't know about you. I have to put him to death every day. If we try to follow Jesus without the Holy Spirit, without the help of the Holy Spirit, without the presence of the Holy Spirit, without the power of the Holy Spirit, Christianity just becomes a dry, lifeless, monotonous chore. And if you're sitting here this morning, you think, that's exactly where I feel like I'm at now. My walk with God is just dry, it's lifeless, it's monotonous. Then there are really just two options to consider. Maybe one is you're not born again. Maybe you're religious. Maybe you've been in church all your life. You've believed but you've not yet been born again. Or number two, maybe this, on the flip side of that, you are born again, you experience new birth, but your walk with Jesus is lifeless because something's interfering with that relationship. And you should address that this morning. Because Christianity is not supposed to be dry, lifeless, and monotonous. The Holy Spirit is available to anyone. Anyone who will surrender themselves to Christ and receive his life-changing power in his presence. Listen, if Jesus can save me, pull me out of a dark hole, out, pull me out of a pit, change me, put me in this place where I'm at today, which I had no desire to ever be, change my life, then listen, he can do the same for you, trust me. And he can do far better with you. You give him better, you give him better options than what I gave him. I want you to think about Romans chapter 8, verse 9. Paul writing this says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, if, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, and when the Spirit of Christ is not a different Spirit, there are different Spirits, there's one Spirit, the Holy Spirit, it's just a different reference, same Spirit. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. You, we don't belong to Jesus without his Spirit. If the Holy Spirit doesn't dwell in you, you don't belong to Jesus. A person can say they're Christian all day long, point to all kinds of religious reasons. But if the Spirit of God doesn't dwell in that person, they don't belong to Jesus. Church, that's not opinion. That's not rhetoric. That's simply what the Word of God says. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The same Holy Spirit, think about this, the same Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from death to life, a glorified life, if that Holy, same Holy Spirit dwells in you, he can give you new life. And he can empower you to live the Christian life. He can empower you to follow Jesus. What did Jesus instruct his disciples to do before he ascended into heaven. Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and what? Make disciples. Make believers, make disciples. Of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. All of us who are born again are called to make disciples. And all of us can contribute to that process, and we ought to. You know, we must be disciples of Jesus ourselves, followers of Jesus but we also have to help others follow Jesus as well. We have to be in that process. And if we're born again and we're empowered by the Holy Spirit, our evangelism, our discipleship, our efforts can be effective. But this, this is what takes place a lot 
if we aren't born again, we try to reach lost people and disciple them, that will have an adverse effect on that person, that church, and that community. And I thought about this. When I, I think that takes place to a large degree in many communities, and even our own, where we have people who really aren't born again. They're religious, and then they're trying to disciple people who aren't born again and are prone to religion. It's quite a conundrum that's created. It reminds me of what Jesus said to the Pharisees in Matthew 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte and win him. And when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. See, religion doesn't have the power to transform anyone. It's incapable. Only the Holy Spirit can transform your life. Only after receiving the Holy Spirit can we be transformed, pursue Jesus by following his footsteps as his disciples. Jesus didn't call his disciples to believe in him. He called his disciples to follow him. And church, you can't do that without the Holy Spirit. Again, if you try to do that, you can only do it so long and it becomes dry and monotonous. And you're like, what am I doing this for? I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels. There's just no life. And church, that's part of the reason. We just have to look at our own lives and say, where is the fruit of the Spirit in my life? And again, am I born again or not? And if I am, what's hindering my walk with God? When Jesus called his disciples, he invited them to follow him. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Then immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Now, Jesus didn't try to convince these men to follow him. He didn't make some huge announcement who he was. He didn't promise them anything other than I'll make you fishers of men. You're fishing for fish, I'll let, you'll fish for men. How do these men respond? It's, it's really intriguing, isn't it? They drop everything and they follow him. And I really thought about that. What, what would cause these men to really just drop what they're doing? Two of them drop their nets, follow Jesus, and the other two to leave their daddy in the boat in the fishing business, just walk away. What would cause people to do that? And really, there's just two options when you think about it. Number one, the fishermen Jesus called didn't have a choice. God sovereignly overcame their will, forced them to follow Jesus. Now, I don't buy that for one minute, but I'm just saying it's an option. It's an option that you have to consider because it other, otherwise it just makes no sense. Really, option two, I look at it this way. The fishermen responded to Jesus because they understood his invitation. At first glance, we may not really understand that invitation. We, again, we see Jesus walk along and say, hey, follow me, and they get up. But th there's more to it than that. These men may have responded because they understood. They may not fully understood what they're doing, but they understood the invitation. And I, I don't believe for a minute the fishermen left their fishing business on a whim. I, 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 don't believe, I, I believe there was some calculation there. These men, again, commercial fishermen, this is how they supported their families. Uh, men, we just don't leave our jobs on a whim, on a risk. 
risk all we have to support our families, that's not the way we do things. And I don't think that's the way these men did things. Now, I think these men understood to a degree what they were doing when they chose to follow Jesus. And when it comes to, to understanding the Bible, sometimes there are times we don't consider culture, we don't consider religious order uh, or historic, historical perspectives. Sometimes we, we lose all that. We, le- we read the Bible, and, and it's okay. I'm just saying sometimes we miss it, and we just put them in modern terms. And I understand the, the Word of God is living. It's active. You know, it's, it's for today. But we also, when something doesn't make sense, we have to just stop and consider, what am I missing here? So remember this, Jesus was called rabbi, which means teacher. So he is a teacher. And when you think about Jesus being a teacher, he's a rabbi. I mean, even the Jewish officials like Nicodemus called him rabbi, teacher. So a rabbi taught the scriptures. And the, the rabbi would really teach the scriptures in a very practical way, like a pastor does. It's how you take the word of God and how you live the word of God. So that'd be more of the rabbi's role in those days. And Jesus, God doesn't force these men to follow him. It's not like they're mindless robots. Jesus says, follow him. And they just start doing marching orders and following him. So they have to understand to a certain degree what that meant. And if you look in the, the, the uh, writings of the Jewish people, the, the Jewish Mishnah, which I don't like to get in too much, but this is more of a cultural thing. I think it's something that we can look to help us understand what the term follow me meant. And there was a term that's it's gaining popularity. I think it's a good term to use, but it's to be covered in, the, in your rabbi's dust. And really, that's not the exact quote you'll find in the Mishnah. It's a little bit of an adaptation, but it's okay. I think what, what we try to communicate in that saying is, is very true. And the Mishnah was written between... It was a collection of writings between 200 B.C. and 200 A.D. Jesus falls right into that, that place. He would have been familiar with this phrase. So the sentence in the Mishnah is basically powdering yourself with the dust of their feet. Speaking of the rabbi's teaching, that you would sit at his feet and be covered in his dust as he teaches the Word of God, a very practical way of living the Word of God. And think about this, the roads in the paths in that region during that time as it is today, is very dusty. And the idea of of being covered in the dust of your rabbi was this, that you're following their teaching so close that as they began to walk, the dust would come up, kind of like Pigpen, right? And Charlie Brown. And you get close and you're just covered in that dust. That's the idea behind the saying. I mean, think about this. You even see this example in the words of Paul. Didn't Paul say this? Follow me as I follow Christ. See, it's a discipleship term. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not perfect. I'm not saying that I'm Jesus. We, we can read that from a very arrogant point of view, but that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's just simply saying, I'm following Jesus. Follow me as I follow him. And we, again, we call that discipleship. Paul was just a man. We know this, but he's a teacher and he's discipling people to follow Jesus. When Jesus called the disciples to follow him, this would have been an honor to those fishermen. Not everybody was invited to follow a teacher. Not everybody was invited invited to follow a rabbi. You know, there was traditional schooling that was available for these people. Uh, Usually those who excelled in the the, uh, religious teachings of the Jews were invited to follow, uh, follow a teacher. This would be a great honor for these fishermen. They obviously weren't 
theologians, they weren't pastors, they weren't ministry type people. Isn't it amazing how God selects people who are not qualified by the world's standards? And that's exactly what it is. He calls these men to follow him. It'd be a great invitation, an honor. Follow me wasn't a generic phrase. It was a formal invitation. Again, if we look at it as a generic phrase, it makes no sense when Jesus calls these people to follow him. It was a formal invitation. And I'm sure the disciples didn't understand the full magnitude of their decision. I mean, these men followed Jesus. They, they were following this rabbi. As soon they became aware as they followed this man, that this man was not just any man, when they began to hear him teach the word of God, when they began to see him live his life, when they saw him minister and do miracles, they knew this man was not just a rabbi. This man could be the Christ. Like the fishermen on the shore of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus is still calling people to follow him. Still calling us. Unfortunately, we're missing something in our, in our westernized version of Christianity. Again, we, we go out of our way to make people believe, to convince them to believe. When Jesus the whole time is inviting them to follow him. Following Jesus isn't just a matter of learning. It's a matter of living. Again, you can, you can memorize this Bible front and back. Praise God. Thank you for that. But if we can't live it, we're missing something. And the Spirit of God empowers us to live it. I mean, you could quote verses on gossip and tail biting and all this, but if you can't live it, what's the point? We're missing something. For this series, I've, I've been studying the life of the disciples recorded in the Gospels. I'm just trying to select a few key elements of discipleship, a few key uh, elements that Jesus was really trying to get his followers to understand. And one of the first ones I saw was this. A disciple who follows Jesus must be submissive. A disciple who follows Jesus must be submissive. Matthew 10, 24, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is, an, is it enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant like his master? If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? I'm not trying to split hairs when I say this, but some Christians present Jesus to the world as their homie, their bro. Again, I'm not trying to split hairs. Just get into the context of what I'm trying to say to you. Jesus is more than our friend. He is our Lord. He can't just be your homie and your friend. He's, he's your Lord. He is your Lord. If we present a compromised gospel, just believe and you'll be saved, and a Savior who is your homie rather than your Lord, the Christian life will become extremely self-centered. It will not be Christ-centered. Jesus has called us as his disciples to follow him. We should submit ourselves to his authority as Lord. Boy, that's easier said than done, isn't it? And so it's easy for us to get selfish desires that arise. And you say, is, does that really, is that even, does it really apply to anything? And the answer is yes, of course it does. And you know, it's amazing how, how these small things in our lives, if we don't address them, begin to pile up and become major items. In those situations, we may want to satisfy our desires. We have flesh, we have desires, but we have to deal with them. But when we're submitted to Jesus as Lord, we take into account his word, we're faced with that choice. We can follow the urges of our flesh, or we can submit our desires to the will of Jesus, follow his example. Always a better path, amen? 
Church, when we decide to do this, when we allow, we say, okay, this is my way, we can identify it, and this is part of the battle. This is half the battle, trust me. It's just recognizing this is God's way and this is my way. And really, when you can start to see that picture, believe it or not, the battle is half over. If you can just separate your flesh from Jesus or what he wants from your life, you can see a pretty clear path. This is the, the way to life. This is the way to death. And just identifying that is a huge part of it. So you get to this place where you're like, okay, I'm going to choose this way. I'm going to go with Jesus. I'm going to follow his way. I really want to do this, but I'm going to submit to him. Church, when you do that in your weakness, in your struggle, the Spirit helps us in those times. See, we look at struggle and weakness as this, oh, I don't want to deal with this. But that's when you will experience the presence of God in a greater measure. In your time of weakness, when you need his strength, when you need his help, he is there. Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. He will empower us in those times. But we got to submit ourselves to God's word and to the, the, way that things, the way that Jesus lived his life. A disciple of Jesus is submissive to the leadership and the authority of our teacher. Are you submissive to Jesus in your thoughts, in your attitudes, in your reactions, your words, in every area of life? Is he Lord over your life? Do your decisions reflect your submission to Christ? See, only with the help of the Holy Spirit, only with the help and power of the Holy Spirit can we learn the teachings of Jesus, submit ourselves to them, and follow his example. In order for a disciple to be submissive, it requires humility. Matthew 18, verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven? And Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. You cannot be converted and become like a little child without the Holy Spirit. Again, that goes right back to new birth. Conversion is a work of the Spirit. Humility, then, is a choice. Humility is a choice. A, we can humble ourselves like a little child and, and we have the will and desire of a child as, our, as we pursue Christ. We rely on him. We trust him. You know, the older a child becomes, the more independent they want to become. And there are certain times in their lives where you're like, thank God, they are almost out of the house. But, I've, you know, again, older children, bigger problems. Younger children, they can be tyrants, they can be terrorists, but you can handle them. So my point is, again, there's some humility that are natural to children. And it's something that we need to have in our lives. The Holy Spirit will help us. You know, the enemy of humility is pride. And pride is really at the center of all sin. You know, the throne on which pride sits can be really identified in these words, me, myself, and I. Unless we're born again, pride cannot be removed from its throne in our hearts. And we will find it difficult to cement ourselves to God in his word. James 4, 6, but he gives more grace, therefore, he says. God resists the pride, but gives grace to the humble. I don't know about you, I need tons of grace. How do I do that? I need to humble myself. If you want to follow Jesus, to follow his path, his ways, humility and, and being submissive is the example he gives us. The more you want to draw closer to Jesus, the closer you want to get to him to follow him, the more grace you're going to need. 
The more we welcome grace into our lives, into our situations, the pow- that powerful presence of the Holy Spirit becomes real in our lives. Church, there, this is another reason why we must be born again. After we are born again, we, self is def- dethroned. And from that throne on our hearts. And Jesus then can be placed on that throne. But what happens is our flesh wants to get right back on that throne. It wants to take Jesus. It's used to being control. Only with grace, only with humility, only with the power of the Holy Spirit can we put Jesus, keep him in his rightful place. And it's a struggle. And it can be tiring. It can be taxing. But it can be done. We need the grace of God in those situations. Every day, multiple times a day, we have these battles of our flesh, battles with our desires. Constantly wants to be in control. Call the shots. And we have the opportunity to exalt ourselves, and we can then say, okay, I can exalt myself here, or I can recognize the will of God, and I can humble myself to it. Again, that's where we begin to make this connection with the grace of God, the power of God, and what develops out of that is spiritual fruit. Discipleship is a process of keeping Jesus on that throne, in our hearts as Lord, submitting ourselves to his will, following his way, following his word. Matthew 16, 24, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus didn't speak these words to believers. He spoke those words to his disciples. And when you think about what he's saying... If you have the desire to follow me, it will require humility and submission. The cross is, is, listen, if you embrace the cross, it means death. It's certain death. It requires humility and submission. In biblical times, a person condemned to the cross experienced certain death. They were not coming back. So in order to follow Jesus, draw near to him, it will, will, will require submission, submitting to our own cross. Jesus, think about this, God in the flesh, co-equal member of the Trinity. Jesus comes to earth, puts on some human flesh, receives human nature. The creator comes like the creation. It's a picture of humility. I mean, just Jesus being himself in the flesh is an incredible picture of humility. And don't ever lose the power of that picture that the creator becomes like the creation. And what does he do? The creator takes upon himself the guilt, the punishment of the creation's sin. The creator doesn't display power and authority in a fleshly manner like some of us would. What does he do? He humbles himself. He submits himself, even within the Trinity, to the Father, to the will of the Father. Think back to the Garden of Gethsemane. Again, You've heard me use this illustration before. We, we kind of think of the Trinity like this. and It's the wrong way to think about it. We think of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Co-equal members. There's submission within that relationship. And it's something that we can't really get and understand. But they are co-equal members. So when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he understands what he's going to do, what's going to be placed upon him, the burden he's going to carry, the weight he's going to get, all the sin, all the shame of making, he's going to take that upon himself. And as he's praying that moment, remember, he's fully God, he's fully man. 
The stress, the anxiety, the agony that he must be feeling at the time has to be tremendous. What does he pray, Father? If it is your will, take, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. It is a picture of humility and submission. If that was one of us, and we were a co-equal member of the Trinity, we might say, why don't you do this? I mean, this was a good idea up there, but it's not a good idea down here in the flesh. Let's go a different route. This, this, this looked good on paper, not so good now. It's not what happens. Jesus submits himself, humbles himself. See, the Holy Spirit will empower us to follow in those footsteps, but it will take humility and submission. The biggest hurdle to overcome in our, our, is our own selves, church. If we're going to follow Jesus, follow him closely, the biggest hurdle is ourself, our desires. One last verse, just to depict the humility of Jesus, and I'll close, is Philippians 2.5. Paul writes this to believers, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So when you consider the heart and actions of Jesus, is, is this the, the mindset you have as a believer? Are you humble and submissive? If not, then there's going to be difficulty in your walk with God. Because the biggest obstacle you're going to face is your flesh. And I, again, I believe there's a devil. I believe there are demons. There are forces that oppose you. The world's against us. I believe all that things. But my greatest enemy is that person I look at in the mirror every morning. And I understand there are people that deal with evil and strongholds. I get that. I believe that. I understand that. I've seen demonic possession. I, I get it. It's real. But for me, myself, I don't know how it is for you. When I look in the mirror, that person in the mirror is the biggest problem. That person's desires, that person's will. And that's where the battle is for me. I don't know where it is for you, but I think probably, like me, most of you are in that same place. The biggest struggle is just you. Getting you off the throne, putting Jesus back on. 